So this morning, Michael, Matthew, and I will all be speaking um, on the topic of wisdom. Essentially, what we've done is taken one sermon and divided it into three parts, um, and each of us will be speaking on one thing. Um, I'll be speaking on the perception of wisdom and where and the false source of it, where it's not from. But before I start, um, I'd just like to open a quick word of prayer. Um, Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity you've given us to come together as believers to fellowship and to worship you. God, just pray that today you'll be um, teaching us all something new, that you'll be growing in us, and that we'll be, um, we'll be constantly seeking to grow you or get to know you more. God, please just be growing in us. Be glorified in our thoughts and our actions um, and everything we do. Um, God, please, please keep us safe as we leave this place today um, and just be glorified in us. Amen. All right, so we will still be reading from Job chapter 28. Um, be focusing on verses 12 through 14. So if you'll turn there, if you close your Bibles, since we did that thing. <laughs> um, so my first point, I'm just going to come around and say it. We don't properly value wisdom. Um, we value a lot of things as people, um, including money. That's one of the major things that we value, um, probably the highest on the list. School, job, um, family or house, um, possessions like cars, things like that. Typically, wisdom won't end up on that list. If I said, so what do you value most? Who won't say wisdom? Um, that's just typically not something that people see as a um, something that's to be valued. Um, Dictionary.com defines valuable as, first of all, having considerable monetary worth, costing or bringing a high price. Um, verse 13 of Job chapter 28 says, uh, Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says it is not in me, and the sea says it is not with me. Um, and 12 says, um, But where shall wisdom be found, and where is the place of understanding? Um, it cannot be bought for gold says in verse 15 wisdom cannot be bought for gold and cannot be weighed in silver it has no monetary value and so it doesn't fit the first definition of valuable second definition having qualities worthy of respect admiration or esteem if someone has wisdom you're going to admire that person and look up to them um, Pastor Mike, he has, God has given him wisdom, and we respect him for that. We respect him as our leader, teacher, and pastor. The third definition, of considerable use, service, or importance. Wisdom is pretty useful. I'm just going to leave it at that. Wisdom is useful, and therefore it fits the third definition. Um, wisdom fits two of the three highest definitions, most accepted definitions of the word valuable, um, and therefore, if we looked at it logically, it is valuable. Um, the reality is man doesn't know or appreciate the value of wisdom. Verse 13 says, man does not know its worth. We don't understand how valuable it is simply because we are a blinded race. Um, our eyes are closed. We can't understand it because it's too great for us to comprehend. Um, verses 1 through 11 um, of chapter 28 describes how powerful man is and how, um, how gifted they are when it comes to things like mining. Um, surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out to the farthest limits. Um, what, what they're writing here is that man 
understands the beauty of treasures of the earth, such as gold and silver and sapphires. We understand how valuable they are and how beautiful they are and that they should be, um, that, that they should be sought after. And yet, he's also saying, although we have, we understand how beautiful things are, we don't understand the most important thing. Uh, mankind, we have the wrong perception of value. It doesn't lie in physical treasures. Um, and one of the most, um, or a very well-known passage of the Bible, Matthew 6.20, says, Not to store up treasures on earth where moths and, um, and rust will eat away and where thieves break in and steal, but to store up our treasures in heaven. Um, possessions such as money and um, our house and cars, they will come to pass. Those things will come to an end. But things that we store up in heaven, such as wisdom and love, those things will last for eternity. Um, and so we have the wrong perception of value. We place our value in temporary things of this earth that don't matter at all when you look at it in the long shot. Not only do we not understand wisdom, but we can't even find it. It's not possible for us to have wisdom. Verses 13 through 14 say, It is not in the land of the, li- um, in the, in the, land of the living, it being wisdom, it's not in the land of the living. It's not in the land of people, meaning it's not on this earth. It's not in creation. Wisdom does, isn't even on earth, so we can't get it. We can't reach out and grab it. It's not something that we, that's available to us in of ourselves. Verse 22 says, Abaddon and death say, We have heard a rumor of it with our ears. Um, in Revelation 9.11, it says that Abaddon is the angel of the bottomless pit meaning Satan. Even a being who was God's second in command, supposed to be his best creation, who lived in God's presence, who was holy, even he doesn't understand what wisdom is. Even he thinks it's a rumor. When we hear something that's a rumor, we think, oh, well, I guess that, that could be true, possibly, maybe, but probably not, I guess, maybe, I don't know. And so we really have we don't know and that's what satan thinks about wisdom well i guess it could exist but probably not that seems too great too powerful it can't possibly exist that's ridiculous and yet it does even even something like wisdom even though beings who lived in the glory of god they don't understand what wisdom is so how can we expect to understand it the point i'm trying to make here is that there is no source of wisdom anywhere in creation Wisdom existed before creation and not within it. Um, wisdom's not found in three things: ourselves, knowledge, or creation. First Corinthians three um, three nineteen says, "For the wisdom of this world is folly with God." Even our our wisdom, it's foolish to God. God sees and says, "That's ridiculous. You guys know nothing. You think you're so smart, and you think you have so much knowledge and wisdom, but really, that's just stupid. You know absolutely nothing. You have no idea what you're talking about." And yet, we see it as so great. Um, and the the ultimate question is, where can wisdom be found? Um, and that is the topic that Matthew will be speaking on right now. Yeah, like Jared said, um, I'll be talking about where can wisdom be found. And the, the two main questions that I want to go over today are first, what is the value of wisdom? Or in other words, how much is wisdom worth? And the second being, what is the source of wisdom? Or where can it be found? Where does it come from? 
And so the first question, what is the value of wisdom? Well, let's start in verse 15, which says, It, wisdom, cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. So to start off, right off the bat, we know that wisdom is valuable. Gold and silver are probably two of the most commonly known valuable items. That if you were to go back into any, almost any time period in history, they would agree that gold and silver are valuable. And still, even to this day, gold is valuable. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Now, the gold of Ophir is the best. It's what they used to build the temple. This is the gold that that today, in today's standards and today's rankings, would be the 24-karat gold. The gold that if you had something the size of an iPhone, you could sell it for $50,000. This is the precious gold, and yet the most precious gold, even that, can't compare with wisdom. In precious onyx or sapphire, two very valuable gems that just don't come close. Golden glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold, using gold over and over again, because what humans hold as most valuable on this earth, still even that can't come close to wisdom. And I love this next verse. It says, No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. I mean, no mention. This is like trying to compare yourself with an Olympic athlete. I don't know how many of you have been watching the Olympics, but it's just absurd to even think of putting yourself in that open lane number one on that track. I mean, to think of yourself running side by side along with these men and women who could literally run laps around you. It's like trying to measure up your financial status with that of Bill Gates. You just come nowhere close. There's just no comparison that could ever be made between this precious item, this gold, this silver, these jewels, these gems, and wisdom. They're so far beneath it. And the last verse in this section, 19, says, The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. If you found a topaz that was the size of a quarter, you could sell it for about $5,000. And yet even that, it just can't equal wisdom. And so it makes you wonder, I mean, how much is this wisdom worth? Well, maybe think of it in maybe a more modern way. What if it said this? It cannot be bought for a Lamborghini. An Aston Martin cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in Bugatti Veyrons or in top-of-the-line Mustangs and Ferraris. Your Lamborghini Revention, your 1934 Rolls-Royce can't equal it, nor could it be exchanged for a 1945 Jaguar. A 1961 Ferrari California Spider, which sold for $10 million, no mention will be made of that. The price of wisdom is more than a 1937 Mercedes-Benz. A 1933 Alfa Romeo can't equal it, nor could it be valued in $5 million Lamborghini model cars. I mean, just a ridiculous amount of money has been put into these vehicles, which, by the way, none of these sold for less than $1.5 million. Million dollars. And yet, they can't compare with wisdom. 
And so what is the value of wisdom? It's immeasurably valuable. It's more valuable than any physical, earthly thing. And so now where's the source of wisdom? Moving down to verse 23. It says, God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder. And here it comes. What is the source of wisdom? From where does wisdom come? He answers it by saying, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. The source of wisdom, where wisdom comes from, is none other than God himself. Wisdom will not, it cannot be found in any created thing like Jared was talking about earlier. Wisdom can't be found in creation. Wisdom comes from God and God alone. And so now we look back and we see that we don't value wisdom high enough. That we can't find wisdom in our own strength. That wisdom is incredibly valuable and that wisdom comes from God. And we're left with the question, what is wisdom? What is this wisdom and why is it so great? Well, Job answers this question in verse 28 when he says, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. The fear of the Lord. And Michael's going to come up and he's going to talk about what it means to fear the Lord and, and explain what is wisdom. last verse in Job 28 says that the fear of the Lord is wisdom. Without the fear of the Lord, there is no wisdom. Now when we say fearing the Lord, we don't mean that we have to be afraid of God. We should respect and have a certain awe towards God. First thing I thought of was Kevin Plum. Um, Kevin Plum is someone who I look up to greatly and who I respect. But he's a big guy and he's strong. He's a, he's a L.A. police officer. And um, if you do the wrong thing, he will chase you down. He will beat you up, and he will sit on you. And I can attest to that. <laughs> um, but I'm not afraid of Kevin because of that. But I have a respect for his power. So how should we understand fearing the Lord? Please open your Bibles with me to Revelation 19, starting in verse 11. From this passage, I want to show four responses God wants from us that show we fear him. Revelation 19, starting in verse 11. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. My first point is that fearing the Lord means understanding that God is almighty. 
at the end of verse 15, the word used for almighty literally means unrestricted power exercising absolute dominion. What we see here is not a mere ruler like a president or a prime minister, but we see the creator of the universe. This word almighty means that God has all the power in the universe. He has all the power of the fiercest storms, all the gravitational power, all the electromagnetic power, all the power in the greatest explosions, all the power of all the blazing suns. The Lord Christ has it all. My family was in Tennessee this past year, um, visiting some of our family. And every single day we were there, it was extremely hot, at least 100 degrees. And all you do is you sweat and you sweat and you sweat. You go inside, you're still sweating. Just, it's ridiculous how hot it is. The sun isn't even that big of a star, yet from 92 million miles away, it can heat our planet to be that hot. The surface of the sun is 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. God has all that power, and he controls it. Look back in verse 15 with me again. It says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. This almighty God with all this power will pour out his judgment on the nations. It is not a cool opposition, but it is a furiously angry one. Second, fearing the Lord means knowing that God has holy wrath against sinners. God's patience will be spent and exhausted with unrighteous man. Back to verse 15, it says... Speaking of Christ here, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. This is the most terrible and terrifying part, that Jesus himself here is pictured as stomping and treading on the wrath and fury of God the Almighty, of this winepress. It means that those who have not repented and turned to Christ are crushed under the righteous, wrathful, furious feet of him, who is Almighty God until their blood runs down like wine. A wine press then was this big, uh, just a big vat that they would fill grapes up in. And they would go stomping around in it until all the grape juice was squeezed out of these grapes. They would crush these grapes. Here we see a picture of all who are unrepentant and unrighteous thrown in this giant vat. And Christ himself, full of wrath and anger, in righteousness, is stomping out the wrath of God upon them. Thankfully, if you repent and believe in Christ, if you have repented and believe in Christ, this is not for you, and God has poured out his grace immensely on you. Third, the fear of the Lord means worshiping God for his grace. Christ has come to save us from this wrath, and now we can serve a holy and perfect in loving God. We should fear him for the wrath we deserve, but our terror is turned into loving reverence because of the cross. The wrath that we read here in Revelation 19 is the wrath that God poured out on Christ on the cross that was supposed to be for you and me. This wrath was put on Christ instead of me. To fear the Lord is to understand that everything we see in life we see through the understanding and lens of who God is, what we deserve, and how the cross fits in between that. If we don't get this and understand this, 
then we can't understand anything else in life properly. We must understand God's grace. Fourth, fearing the Lord means valuing Christ most because of the grace God has given. Wisdom comes from valuing things the right way. We have to value Christ most. We've been reading in Job today about the gold and the silver and the topaz and the sapphire and all these magnificent, magnificent things. And the first thing that comes to my mind is, I could do a lot of stuff with that. I could get a lot of stuff with that and I could use it for myself. I value the, the thought of that so, so highly because it has value. Yet I need to value Christ more and see him as my treasure. Every day, you and I need food and water to survive. And when we don't have it, we get grumpy and we complain. We value it so highly because it sustains us. And we need to value Christ in that same way. Fearing the Lord means understanding that God is almighty. Knowing that God has holy wrath against sinners. Worshiping God for his grace. And valuing Christ most because of the grace God has given us. We need to value Jesus most and see him, wrath, and love properly. And this is the true source of wisdom. My name is Matthew Holbrook. I think I know most of you, but uh, I have the privilege, privilege along with Dan Martin, to, uh, to lead the high school group. Um, I have to say, Dan carries the heavier load on that. And, and by the way, for those of you who might wonder, Dan has been doing high school ministry now for 33 years, um, which is incredibly long, um, and uh, just a true testament to his faithfulness there. Um, but this morning, I want to share with you a little bit about what we've been looking at as a high school group uh, in recent days. Um, most of the more serious conversations I get into with the young people here at our church ultimately have to do with wisdom, uh, making wise choices, wisely weighing options, exercising wisdom in, in various situations, in relationships, in school, with life decisions. But the need for wisdom is not confined only to young people. We're all in need of wisdom. The older I get, the more desperately I find myself coming to the Lord, pleading, begging, asking for wisdom in various situations, and I suspect that I'm not alone in that. But the greater my need for wisdom in my own life, it seems, the greater the temptation is to rely on my own wisdom, to look to wisdom that is self-generated or, or uh, uh, self-reliant. Yet when we consider true wisdom, the wisdom that Jared, Matthew, and Michael have been talking about, biblical wisdom, wisdom that actually means something, we see that this kind of wisdom is not found from among the land of the living. It's, found from within our, it's not found from within ourselves. True wisdom is the fear of the Lord. So we who are desperate for wisdom should be desperate to have the fear of the Lord reign in our lives. Michael's just done a, a good job in outlining what it means to fear the Lord, to fear God. It's a, it's a fear that stems from understanding the gravity of sin, the seriousness of our situation apart from the cross, and the reality of God's love that overwhelms all of this wrath. 
It's Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. It's, the, it's Isaiah coming into the temple, seeing the, the pre-incarnate Jesus sitting on the throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. An angel shouting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory and saying it so loudly that the foundations of the temple are shaking and the temple is filling with smoke. Isaiah encountered an awesome view of the Lord Jesus Christ and he was shattered by it. He fell down. And he says, woe is me, for I am ruined. I am falling apart. I'm coming undone. He responded in the only appropriate way that a person can respond in the presence of a holy, majestic, awesome God, and that is with complete and utter terror and a sense of overwhelming guilt resulting from the sin that we've committed. Isaiah said, I'm a man of unclean lips. The prophet who spoke the words of God said, I'm a man of unclean lips. And yet a few verses later, Isaiah responds to a call from God as to who will go for us, who shall I send? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. What happened in between there? Well, Jesus sent an angel to Isaiah with a burning coal and burned his mouth, cleansed him, purified him, forgave him, made him clean. And Isaiah understood the power of the forgiveness of God. He understood what it meant to be made clean before a holy and righteous God. And Isaiah's response was nothing short of awe, reverence, but also love, service, and gratitude. Here here am I, send me. I'm your guy. I'll do whatever you want. See, when we have the fear of the Lord, we will respond in that way. God's love is the most defining characteristic about him. First John says God is love. Definitionally, God is love. But the idea of God's love, apart from a fear of God, is simply emotionalism. When we know the awesome power and wrath of God and we know what it is that we deserve, this gives us a real understanding of the depth of God's love, the magnitude of the cross, to endure that wrath on our behalf. And so as we consider these thoughts and we consider wisdom overall uh, here this morning in light of the fear of God, I want to look at 2 Peter chapter 1. So if you would, turn in your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be looking here for just a few minutes at verses 2 through 4. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Peter says here in 2 Peter, verse 2, It says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust." Now, when I look at this passage, there's one thing that jumps out to me uh, in particular, where he says here that he has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything pertaining to life and godliness. I don't know how many of you are ever involved in writing contracts or reviewing or approving contracts, but some of the words you look to avoid always in a contract are words like everything, all, always. You run into problems with that in contracts because there's an obligation for you and there's no escape clause, there's no carve-out, there's no exception. It's everything, it's all. And and when you're contracting with somebody what you're obligated to do, you don't want to put yourself in that position if you can possibly avoid it. God puts himself in exactly that position here. He says that he grants to us everything. No exceptions, no carve-outs, nothing held back. Everything pertaining to life and godliness 
is granted to us. And I would suggest to you that everything pertaining to life and godliness, if it doesn't just include wisdom, it may very well be wisdom in and of itself. The wisdom of this life given to us from God, resulting from a fear of the Lord, is everything pertaining to life and godliness. Having wisdom in how we live our lives, with all the value that Matthew was outlining when he was talking, wisdom is supremely valuable and leads to delivering to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And so I want to give you three points about this kind of wisdom that we can see here from this passage. Point number one, wisdom comes from having a clear understanding of God. Wisdom comes from having a clear understanding of God. Verse 2 here in 1 Peter says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. In the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. To have a proper knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, we must have a full comprehensive view of all who he is, of his sovereignty, of his love, of his power, of his grace, of his mercy. We have to see him even as Michael read to us out of Revelation 19 in that terrifying view. We need to see him for all that he is. True knowledge of him is the basis for how God grants to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Notice in verse 3, he says that he grants to us everything through the true knowledge of him. Through the true knowledge of him. We need to have a true knowledge, an accurate knowledge, a full knowledge, a personal knowledge. We need to have a true knowledge of of him. That's how God grants to us everything relating to life and godliness. That's how God grants to us wisdom. Contrast that kind of wisdom with that comes from God with man's wisdom in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 it says, "Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom and let not a mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. Don't boast of your wisdom, don't boast of your might, don't boast of your uh, wisdom, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me." That's what we boast in. We boast in understanding and knowing God. What about him? For That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things. That's what we boast in. We don't boast in our wisdom and our riches and our might because they're meaningless before God. Man's wi- wisdom is folly. God's wisdom is the real deal. And he says, that comes from knowing me. Know me above all else. Don't just know about me. Know me. Don't boast in your own wisdom, boast in the Lord. You want everything pertaining to life and godliness? You want wisdom? It comes from a true knowledge of Him. Know Him. See Him rightly. See Him as a righteous and perfect judge who has called us to righteousness and before whom we fall short. See Him as the one who demands justice and which results in our deserved eternal destruction and see Him as the one who paid the price through the ultimate act of love on the cross. He bore our sin on the cross and canceled the debt that we could not pay. See him in that way. Number one, wisdom comes from a clear understanding of God. Number two, wisdom comes from being attracted to God. Note here in verse 3, 1 Peter 1, that he says that he calls us by his own glory and excellence. God calls us by his own glory and excellence. I love that reality, and, and I, I want to understand and grasp that more and more all the time, and I hope you do too. God doesn't call us to himself with promises of an easy life, with promises of health, with promises of wealth, of promises of good times. He doesn't call us by promises of circumstantial happiness. He calls us by his glory and his excellency. 
That's what he calls us to. He calls us to himself because he is what is most valuable and we find our joy in him, not in the things that he gives to us, the ways that he blesses us, which he most certainly does, but those are the shadows of the real thing. He's the real thing. He calls us by his own glory, by his own excellence. Our ultimate calling for all of eternity is to find everlasting joy in him. Psalm 1611 says, In your presence is fullness of joy. You want that fullness of joy? In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Forever is a very long time. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. If pleasures are in, in him forever and ever, where does our pleasure, our joy, our peace come from today? It comes in him. This starts today, August 12th, 2012. Our pleasure, our joy comes in him. In seeing him as glorious, in seeing him as excellent. Hopefully we do that before today, but we need to understand him. We need to see him clearly. We need to see him for all of his glory, for all of his excellency. And that begins by first fearing him, having a fear of the Lord. We need to see him for all who he is, and that results in an initial level of fearing him. Because the reality is, we should be, as Isaiah was, terrified of the Lord Jesus. We should be terrified of the wrath that Michael was explaining. The reality is, because of the cross, when we've repented and and given him our lives, we don't have to be. But we need to see him as someone that is worthy of that terror apart from the cross. And fearing him is wisdom. The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has has it rests satisfied. Isn't that a strange thought that the fear of the Lord, fearing the Lord leads to life? It leads to us resting satisfied. That is something, that is language that anyone who is not a believer thinks is gibberish. It makes no sense. Fearing God leads to to life, leads to joy, leads to peace, leads to satisfaction. How does that work? It works because we have a view of him that understands what it is that we deserve and the extent of his love that he has poured out on us to save us from what it is that we deserve. The fear of the Lord leads to life. Fearing the Lord is wisdom, results in satisfaction, true joy. That's why Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself. See him clearly, which starts with fearing him. And we see him clearly, we fear him, then we delight in him. This this strange thing that only Christians can, can grasp and we delight in him, then he puts his desires in us. Now, you see how this connects to wisdom? Is there anything more wise in the world than to want what God wants? Is that what your heartbeat is? Do you want to want what God wants? If you want what God wants, that is the basis for acting wisely. You want what he wants, he's going to lead you in what he wants you to do, which is ultimately the perfect path for you. Number one, wisdom comes from a clear understanding of God. Number two, wisdom comes from being attracted to God. Number three, fearing God keeps our priorities straight. Sometimes we fear the wrong things. That's because we put our faith in the wrong things. That's the real issue for you and me. We have a lot of fears because we have a lot of unbelief. Every time we are sinfully fearful fearful of something that God tells us not to fear, that's a moment of unbelief. Piper says, it's a place in the kingdom of our souls that has not yet been conquered, not yet fully under the rule of Jesus Christ. So Israel's conquering of the promised land, that's God's metaphor for us in fighting unbelief. And in the face of of Canaan's fortified cities and the giants that Israel was facing, we're told this in Deuteronomy 31.6, 
Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. God says, be strong and courageous. Don't fear. Why? If you fear the Lord, there's nothing left to fear. Everything else is put in priority. So be strong. Be courageous. That's the call, that when we fear the Lord, we have everything else in order. Fearing the Lord results in us valuing Him over all else. It results in us valuing the cross over everything else. I've, uh, I, I talk with Brian Zuniga about this frequently, the, the reality that when we teach, it seems that whether it be in high school or college or here on a Sunday morning, that often things come back to teaching the same thing. And sometimes it feels like I'm preaching the same sermon over and over and If I am, I'm sorry, but it's what I need to hear, and I think that's why we come together, that we need to hear this, that there is one overriding, driving factor in all of life, and that is that Jesus is more valuable than anything else. And if we just had that right, imagine how well everything else in life would fall into place. If we could just live with the reality that Jesus is more valuable than everything else, and yet we seem to forget that. But when we fear the Lord, it results in us valuing Him over all else. We know we should fear. We know we should fear His wrath. And yet, we know His love and His grace and His mercy. Fearing the Lord means that our ultimate value in life is Jesus. And we show that most clearly when we value Him more than whatever it is that we might be losing. Health, wealth, family, your very life. You see, when we fear God... We will properly value Jesus over everything else, and everything else falls into place. Our priorities are in order. Job showed that he understood this earlier in the book of Job. Back in the first chapter, Job lost his riches, his house, his servants, even his family. In chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, it says, Then Job arose, rent his robe, shaved his head, and fell upon the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I come from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job had a right view of God. He feared the Lord, and this set the perspective for him for everything in life at that point. That's why true wisdom is fearing the Lord. Without fearing the Lord, we can't see properly. If we can't see properly, we can't understand our situations in life properly in that view, then wisdom is lost. Wisdom comes from a clear understanding of God. Wisdom comes from being attracted to God. Fearing God keeps our priorities straight. As we sit here together today, these realities probably ring true for most of us. They probably seem kind of obvious. But we forget, and that's why we need to come together regularly. It's why we need to be in the Word regularly, why we pray, and we're focusing our mind on the Lord regularly. Wisdom stems from seeing God accurately, and we need to encourage each other to do that. It comes from responding to that accurate view appropriately. But the clutter of sin in this world distracts us from a clear view of God, and it doesn't take long before we begin to discount the most valuable treasure that exists, that which is more valuable than gold or precious stones, and we elevate the creation over the Creator. We elevate relationships, money, power, prestige, reputation. The world obscures our view of the cross and leaves us relishing lesser things. And as a result, we end up valuing foolishness over wisdom. I read an article this week about Austin Chapman. You may have seen it. 
He's a 21-year-old who was born profoundly deaf and never understood music or the people moved by it. He said this, My whole life I've seen hearing people make a fool of themselves, singing their favorite song or gyrating on the dance floor. I've also seen hearing people moved to tears by a single song. Wouldn't that be interesting if you were deaf and you would see other people responding to music and you've never heard music and you just wouldn't get it, would you? He said, it was the hardest thing for me to wrap my head around. But earlier this week, Austin Chapman received uh, hearing aids implanted in him that allowed him to hear for the first time. I would have liked to have been there to see his reaction, but he says this, I sat in the doctor's office, frozen, as a cacophony of sounds attacked me. The whir of the computer, the hum of the AC, the clacking of the keyboard. Could you imagine hearing for the first time? That night, a group of his close friends jump-started his musical education with a crash course. They played for him music by the Rolling Stones, Michael Jackson, Elvis, Radiohead, and Mozart. And Austin Chapman said this, When Mozart's Lacrimosa came on, I was blown away by the beauty of it. At one point of the song, it sounded like angels singing, and I suddenly realized that this was the first time I was able to appreciate music. Tears rolled down my face, and I tried to hide it. But when I looked over, I saw that there wasn't a dry eye in the car. I finally understood the power of music. Austin's experience is a wonderful illustration and reminder to us. He was a blank slate when it came to music. He was not influenced or preconditioned by various types of music, by life experiences, by memories, by the way that he was raised. He listened to music for the first time without preconceived ideas or outside influences. Not to say that there was anything necessarily wrong with other kinds of music, but when, when he heard the real thing, when he heard Mozart, when he heard true genius, he was moved by the power that it held. My hope today is that we would be steadfast and determined to remove the distractions, the obstacles, the competing forces that negatively influence how we see the Lord. Let's seek with everything in us to see Him purely, to see Him as if we were blank slates, influenced by nothing other than Him and His Word. And as we see Him clearly, may we hear his true genius in his word. May we be moved by the power that it holds, the power that leads us to fear the Lord, and that is wisdom. Lord, thank you for your word, and thank you for the the way you speak into our lives through your word. God, thank you that you are the true source of wisdom, and you've revealed yourself to us. And God, we can come to you and know you, and as we know you, we delight in you and we relish you and you grant to us wisdom that is not from this world and God that when we see you and love you and value you everything else is in perspective and we may not know what to do in any given situation but when we know that you are worth more than anything else in this world it shapes how we think how we feel and how we respond to any given situation and God I pray that you would just implant in us that value of you so that it drives everything else and that we would know what it means to fear you and that we would know what it means to have wisdom. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.